Are we doing everything that we can to make sure that today's high schools are modernized for the kids that will attend them? And also, are we doing enough to pay attention to the types of charter schools that are being introduced through some of our southern states? We're going to talk about all of this on The Citizen Stewart Show. Hi, this is T, calling to let you know that I like the show. However, I feel like you and Ravi take too long to dive into the subject. There's too much banter in the beginning of the episodes. Example, the January 31st episode. Um, I had to wait. <laughs> took 11 minutes to start talking about what the listed topics were. So please, try to cut down on the banter. It'll probably make the show run smoother. Thank you. All right, guys, as you just heard, we get feedback from many of our listeners. And I want to briefly mention to you how those listeners are getting their messages to us. We have a phone number where you can leave us a voicemail. You can leave it at 321-213-9171. And there's also another way, in case you're shy and you don't want to leave your voice on a voicemail, you can send us an email and you can send that to Show at lostdebate.com. And with that, Let's get started with this show because one of the pieces of feedback that we just had was that we need to get to the meat of the show faster. So the meat of the show today, we are talking about high schools and we're talking about specifically whether or not they are modernized for the kids that they serve today, whether they actually make sense anymore. Does high school even make sense? One of the things that prompted this was a piece that Ravi wrote, our good co-host here, Ravi. You say my name like my mom says it when I'm in trouble, Ravi. So I feel like I'm about to get lectured on something. But keep going. You might. Anyways, so Ravi wrote this piece. There is a new newsletter that comes from the Lost Debate Network called Imbroglio, and you can find it at imbroglio.substack.com. I-M-B-R-O-G-L-I-O. Can I say a few things about this before we start? So first of all, go out there and subscribe. And there's another piece that I just dropped this week called The Progressive Pleasantville Problem. And it's all about like some ideas we've talked about on this podcast where like, why do we treat certain types of school choice differently than others? So I posit a theory about that. But on this piece, I want to start by saying something that you and I have talked about privately before, which is this is a piece not meant to be like, hey, every little piece of this is original. And I say this in the piece, like every design element it's not meant to be like, hey, I trademark Ravi Gupta, came up with this idea, and no high school creates this. It's more like me going through the version of what I did when I started a middle school, which was I, was I was fortunate enough to get a grant, and I was trained by this organization called Building Excellent Schools that took me to all the high-performing, actually all types of schools, but I was particularly focused on middle school at the time, all high-performing schools around the country, and take design elements from those different schools. And so I was able to say, all right, Here's what I would do to put it all together for a school that I think could really work. And in that case, it really did work. And so this is me going through this process now again saying, all right, now with the benefit of six years or so since I've been running schools and since I at least took part in launching a high school, how would I do it differently? And this is my best argument as to the kind of school I would want to start today if I put my back into it. So, you know, tabula rasa, I give you a blank piece of white paper and then I say, here's a grant, here's some money. I need you to go forth and create a high school. You know, I don't care. You know, there's no design constraints. There's no design constraints on you at all. Pull together what you think is like the smartest plan. Tell me where you get, where you start to create your vision. Like where are you drawing from in terms of source material to really think through what gets designed? Yeah, I think it's a few things. I mean, I'm fortunate like you to have seen a lot of schools over the years. So 
the pandemic was the one period of time in which I had not visited a lot of schools, but both before the pandemic and then recently, I just get out into schools all the time. Uh, and it's just a part of like who I am. It brings me great joy. Sometimes it brings me great sadness. <laughs> but uh, so I think that's part of it. I read a ton as you do about what's working. It's not. So like we talked about Purdue Polytechnic the other day and we like hear about these micro schools. And so you start to learn about what's going on and surveying the plethora of innovations that are happening in, in curriculum. And then I would say a big part of it is I spend life as an adult and I think about often the difference between what we were preparing our kids in my in the schools that I ran for. In one case, I have one of them that works for us at Lost Debate that we talked about before. Comparing what we did for them and a lot of schools like my schools did for them and what the world is asking of them. And I would say that last part is what informs this piece more than anything else, which is to say, I actually believe, although there's like a part of this piece that I think is kind of like can sound confident. A lot of this piece is a reflection on things that I did wrong and things I would do differently now that I've spent time outside of those schools and spent time employing people outside of the education world and saying, you know what, this is what the world is demanding of young adults and what I wish we had spent more time on with these kids. You no, know, there's a piece here that you start out with. You don't really start with curriculum or, you know, traditionally be considered like educational topics. You start with attention management is like your first glaring headline here. Uh, why? <laughs> why specifically a core focus from the beginning on attention management? And tell us what that means actually anyways, too, for people listening. Yeah. And I think, you know, you were giving me a hard time because I have a couple of buzzy sort of podcaster types in here, like <laughs> Cal Newport and Andrew Huberman and you know, others like Johan Hari and Nir Ayal. And I basically argue that attention management is probably the most important skill that any adult can have right now. And I, I quote Cal Newport on that, who wrote the book Deep Work that I know you and I are probably both fans of. It definitely affects the way I think about my days. And actually it's something that's come up on this podcast quite a bit. Like what's the role of the cell phone? Do we have kids on the internet in school? It, it's it's a cousin of the chat GPT conversation. And I firmly believe, I believe this about myself, I believe it about the people who work for me, and I believe it about kids that we are struggling as a society with this issue. I'm struggling with it. Most people around me are struggling with it. It affects the quality of my work. It's something I look for in every person I hire is the ability to manage their attention. And I think this is a number one priority for kids. And, and we have our own issues with it. And we had one foot outside of the internet and one foot in the internet. These kids only know the world where their, their attention is being essentially hijacked by these incredible machines that we have and incredibly incredible technologies. So teaching kids what those technologies are doing to them from a scientific basis, teaching them on a theory basis, like all these thinkers that are you know talking about like how best do we manage our days, our time? How do you think about being great? You know, Cal Newport says, you know, had this book before he wrote Deep Work called So Good They Can't Ignore You. And his theory, and that's it's such a ta good tagline for what I would want my kids coming out of my school to be. It's like, whatever your passion, if you want to tap dance, if you want to be a neurosurgeon, if you want to be an actor, if you want to be a teacher, I want you to be so good they can't ignore you. And he has persuaded me, and I think probably you too, based on what I know, even though you give me a hard time about this, that like mastering your attention is critical to that. Like being the kind of person who sits down every single day and says, I'm not going to let the technologies pull me in any one direction or whatever. I'm going to use the technologies as a tool of almost like personal and professional liberation to allow me to accomplish the things that I'm passionate about. 
And so that's why I do this. I know it's kind of long-winded, but like that's why I start with this because nothing else matters if the kids aren't actually present and purposeful with their time. I don't have a disagreement with that at all. I think the thing I joked about with you is that I am in a rabbit hole where, you know, like, for instance, speaking of attention management, when you're on YouTube and one video rolls into another, if you don't stop it, right? So before you know it, you look up and you spent a lot of time on YouTube. Well, if you watch videos that have Cal Newport in them, for instance, the next videos that come up, you'll eventually get to Andrew Huberman and you'll get to Rick Roll. And, and Rick Roll has some great podcast guests who all themselves will get you to people like Matt Diavella, you know, on minimalism. And, you know, you could keep going down the rabbit hole. I love all this stuff. We actually did a segment today on Mr. Beast on the Lost Debate, if you know anything about Mr. Beast. I love Mr. Beast uh, and love his business model. But this is the thing is all those videos, and <laughs> this is what made you kind of go, what? I said... There is a Andrew Tate-ish type of no. broosphere in productivity world <laughs> to the point now where there's a counter genre that's talking about toxic productivity. Like the 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 amount of time <laughs> that we spend on productivity content and intaking productivity content actually is actually a trick to not be productive. No, but I, I actually think there's there's something really meaningful to that. There's somebody, I was listening to this guy, I can't remember who it was. Who was like, you know what? He's like, he was talking about why he doesn't time block. And he's like, sometimes I just want a, like time to do nothing. And there's this book called How to Do Nothing. And I actually think that book and Cal Newport's books are, are not mutually exclusive. Like for, for me, there's a difference between how I treat my Sunday and how I treat my Tuesday morning. Yeah. You know, and I, and I want our kids to have that day where they're just not doing anything and don't feel the pressure to do it. But also when they sit down and they're like, hey, I'm, I'm doing work. First of all, I want them to be passionate about it. I want them to love what they do. So I don't want them to feel like I just need to like count beans, but I want them to be like, you know what? I want to write a novel and I'm going to get that thousand words done today and I'm not going to be scrolling TikTok. All right. So I will say this. This is a foundational premise in your piece. So as we move on, this is what I'll say about that foundational piece is it's a hook for me and it very much feels like an elective that could be taught in a high school I do think that there is some thinking to be done about it as a foundational piece how enduring is it of an issue? How really primary or foundation or elective should it be like as a focus yep. within the school? But there's one thing I want to say about that. Yeah, I, I think we could talk about whether it should be permanent. I, I believe like very strongly that this will continue to be an issue, if not more. But there's one design element to this that I want to highlight for our audience, which is I would want students to have two grades. One is like a grade about the science of the attention management and all that kind of stuff. Now that doesn't necessarily need to be every year. They don't need to be breaking down the science every year. The other grade I would have them is like, I would want them assessing their own ability to spend their time the way they intended to. And I use, this, I use these words very deliberately, meaning this is one of the things I would want, I've wanted to change about the high school that we did at Republic, which I didn't overlap with the implementation of a lot, but I did overlap with the design of it a lot, is that at a certain point, we need to train kids to be college students and, one, and then eventually to be professionals. And one of the things that separates a successful college student and professional from others is the ability to be deliberate about your own time when people aren't telling you how to spend your time. And I think we are so used to telling kids exactly how to spend their time in high school. Understandably, I was as guilty as anybody about this, that we're not really thinking, taking a step back and being like, all right, you design 
like as you're a junior and senior, design your time, do it well. I think when it happens too often, it's like a scheduling quirk, like study hall, right? But it's not like this deliberate process. Now, there, like with everything else, there are exceptions. Summit Academy, good example of these. There are examples of schools that are more deliberate than others about this, but I would want it to be way more intentional about how you gradually release responsibility for this. Uh, but okay, let's talk about writing. Why writing? Not reading and not some of the other things, but why writing? Well, because it's high school. Okay. I think I spend a lot of time on writing because it's high school. I think if it were middle and elementary, I would be spending a lot more time on reading, if I'm being honest. Now, gotcha. I've had kids show up to the fifth grade who can't read. And I know Ben Markovitz, for example, who ran Psy Academy and then Collegiate Academies in New Orleans, that there are a lot of people with more experience in high school than me that have kids showing up in ninth grade who can't read. So I want to put that to the side. I have a whole series of thoughts about how I would handle that kind of challenge. But one thing I wanted to start with was, well, I've spent a lot of time as an adult thinking about writing. I was a speechwriter. I spent a lot of time writing as you do. I ran a huge training. I continue to like run training communications directors for political campaigns where I teach them to write. Like I, I actually take a step back in this training and say, before we even talk about how to spread a message politically, you need to know what like it means to be a great writer and how to communicate in the English language. So I believe in writing. And so I actually had a whole caveat on, in the essay about this because I didn't want people to misunderstand what I was saying next, which is that we place too much emphasis on the five paragraph essay and just essays generally in high school. And I think people could misunderstand this. And I try to go out of my way to say, I'm not saying let's get rid of the essay. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying we're not moving off of it fast enough. Argumentative essays, expository essays, narrative essays, descriptive essays are a building block towards something else. Now, there are professional essayists. You and I get sometimes write essays. This in and of itself is an essay. It's important to know how to write an essay. But we're asking kids in late elementary school to start writing five-paragraph essays, sometimes early elementary, but usually late elementary. And then all the way through to the AP exam, we're awarding over half of the points on the literature, the, the AP writing exam, over half of the points to essays that are basically evolutions of the essay they're learning early in elementary school. And so I ask in this essay, why not ask kids to start writing other types of things that are more applicable to the world they're going to be entering earlier in high school than we are now? Okay, I just want to stop for a second and talk about an irony. That I wrote an essay and I'm asking kids. That you wrote an essay to communicate with the world your idea of what a better high school should look like and to engage the public and engage the world in the idea that you have. You wrote an essay. And you wrote a good one, and it was well-written, and it gets its point across, and it's not a business memo. It is not a lot of other things. It's, it's a persuasive essay. Well, let me also say, the only reason why I was able to write that essay is because I wrote a memo, and I built a budget that I sent to some foundations to get them to fund the lost debate. <laughs> so, and like, then you wrote like, an oh, essay and to the public. Essay, but that's what I'm saying. Right? But once again, I'm not getting rid of the essay in this high school. I'm saying, uh, and for folks who haven't read the essay yet, I want to start introducing kids and asking them to write a diversity of other mm -hmm. things mm -hmm. earlier in high school. I talk about TV movie treatments and scripts, which are another, the same week I wrote that essay, I also handed in a TV script that I was working on. Business plans, professional memos, and then other things I would consider. I, I would have to find time because I, I want to be careful not to be like, we're going to do everything in the world, but thing, other things I would consider are scientific papers, 
uh, novels and novellas and professional emails. Like, you know, the fancy private schools are already asking this of kids a lot. Like there are a lot of private schools who say like, by the time you graduate, you're going to write a novel or whatever, right? Like there are actual schools that are asking this of, of kids. What I would say is like, look, I'm not getting rid of the essay. I think it's really important. I just think that by the end of high school, I want you to be able to do more than write that essay. And a lot of schools do this, but I would make it more deliberate and and really make it a focus to say, we're going to introduce you to a diversity of types of writing that you're going to be required to do. So you may never write another script again, but you're going to be able to write it once, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. the same is true of descriptive, like a, like a narrative essay is a good example. I don't know the last, I don't, I've never written a narrative essay outside of school yet. Writing a narrative essay was probably helpful in some way to me writing some of the scripts that I've written or the novel I'm working on right now. Now, if my high school teacher was empowered and planned out like, hey, we're now juniors and seniors, what would you write if you could write a novel? Start working on that now? That would have been badass. Mm-hmm. And I would have actually really enjoyed that that process. Some of this feels like advanced to me in a couple of ways. And I'm wondering, things like business plans, for instance, to me, very much seem like post-secondary, depending on which post-secondary program you're in, Yeah, whether or not that's within the the syllabus of you know your specific college program, for instance. And same thing with movie treatments. Professional memos are something, dear God, as somebody who has hired people and has worked with people in different settings or whatnot, the number of people that make it to professional positions that can't write yep. is astounding to me. But even when you say we should do more in high school... <laughs> That's, I think, the reformers brain working, thinking that we can get scholars up to a higher level at an earlier time. That's what reformers always believe. It almost sounds like you think we've gotten to a good place with the the five paragraph essay and we haven't. In 12 years, you still don't write a good five paragraph essay. This is such an important point. And I think a thing that plagues every ambitious educator is like, you know, Ben Markowitz, who I'd mentioned before, had, you know, he he famously talks about how, you know, he ran a, a school in New Orleans that was so successful that he was invited on Oprah. And he talked about, maybe even when he was on Oprah, I can't remember how his original, you know, he he himself went to Yale. He's like a really smart guy. And he had boxes and boxes of Lord of the Flies novel. And he was like, hey, I love this book. We're going to read this. He, and he basically took them out of the box, you know, basically realized that these kids coming into school couldn't couldn't access it by and large. And so he had to put him back in the box. And I had that in my head as I started our first school. And so I always had like this question of rigor. Academic rigor is a very complicated one because you can make any number of mistakes. You could dumb it down too much and the kids are too bored. You could go too advanced and be too ambitious and you could be over the kids' heads or uh, you can get it just right. And that's why I think one of the central things, and, and I maybe should have put it earlier in this, is something you and I talked about a couple of weeks ago, which is this mastery-based learning, which is, I think it's absolutely crucial in the school to reimagine the role of the teacher and reimagine the role of this class so that kids can advance and personalize their learning more. And parents are desperately asking for this. Like I just talked to Todd Rose today from Populous, who just came out with this really awesome survey about what parents are actually looking for. And they they're one of the top things they rank is mastery-based learning. They want it. They want more personalized learning and they want more subjects that are relevant to what the kids are going to experience outside of school right away. And I put that all together and I had written this before I saw that data, but this only dovetails with that to say, look, like, yes, I'm ambitious about kids. I, you know, at Republic, we would hold the bar high for kids. And we famously had kids learning computer science starting in the fifth grade, still do. And 
at least from what I from what I understand. And not only were we successful at getting kids to code early on, but then we started training school districts to do it. Like Austin, we mm-hmm. went to Austin and started training them. We shared our curriculum with Nashville. And for every one of those stories, I could share a story where we tried something and we were too ambitious, too fast. I, I had a group of kids who were our lowest performing readers in our fifth grade. It might've been by sixth grade. I had a Malcolm X book, book club where I would read with them. It was like their six or seven lowest performing readers. And we finished the book. But it was like, it took all year. It was still a worthwhile exercise, but it was, it was tough. And I, I could tell you, like I tell you a bunch of stories where we, we set the bar high and we failed and we set the bar high and succeeded. But one thing I know is that this mastery-based learning combined with the reimagining of the role of teachers is, is almost like the, the gateway innovation, if you will, if we want to call it that, that is necessary to do all the other important things that kids need. The other thing is like, Yes, the kids aren't writing the five paragraph essay well enough by the end of school, but the answer can't be just keep repeating it because the kids are getting bored, right? Like they're mm-hmm, they're getting mm-hmm, it over mm-hmm. and over and over again, and so maybe part of unlocking their passion and abilities because the kids aren't the problem. We keep giving them a free ride on really crappy writing, though. Like I'm with you; like they have to do it over and over again. Inspire them, though. Well, I mean, you know, okay. inspire them. Don't teach them Beowulf. And then ask him to write an essay, right? Like, let's rethink this a little bit, you know? Like, you know, I remember being bored by that. Yeah. And, you know, listen, you're talking to a guy who I'm kind of a a mystery on all of these things because in one way I write and people read what I write and I'm like feel immensely blessed for that, but I don't consider myself like a trained writer and I don't, I just write for pleasure. I write and I always have for fun, for pleasure and I started out with poetry and so you know there's there's a lyrical content to the way I hear words and whatnot but I'm not a trained writer it didn't come out of school it didn't come from schooling it didn't come from the essays but what I will say is I am shocked at how how poorly people write who are 10 times more educated than I am in a lot of cases in in most cases you know so yeah same 100% but that's why you and I are actually okay it's cuz you and I probably had this similar experience, which is, although, yeah, I wound up at Yale Law School, I went through Binghamton and I was a complete screw up in high school. We had completely different pathways, my friend, but I love your pathway a lot. (laughs) But I was not a good writer for a long time and I had to learn the hard way. And I think in part, like this beginner mentality that you and I take to writing is probably what serves us well. Often the worst writers I've met professionally are people who were probably told they were good writers in high school. And it's almost like the person who's really good looking in high school and they stop trying, you know, they're not ambitious enough. That's a terrible example, but okay. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like the jock who just, you know, never moves out of the town that they grew up in because they like they had it going on versus yeah. the sort of ugly duckling who like really has to work hard. That reminds me of the uncle in Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah. Who's still throwing that ball years later into his thirties. Yeah. So this moves us into a next piece of your argument to close out that piece though. I agree that anything we can do to make people better writers, not just in in early grades, but all the way through and even in college and after college. I don't know what we do to start getting adults to see that your graduation date isn't the end of your education in your life, right? Like you have to keep learning. And writing to me, I'd be right there with you on this one. One thing I want to point out, if I had a bone to pick with you is- Just one. I feel like I've heard a bunch of bones already, but that's what this is for. This is the lost debate. So lean into it. I feel like your references and your citations are not diverse enough. I think your source material doesn't come from a diverse enough well of people. Like, you know, the people that you cite on writing well, 
I just think of what it took for me, who I modeled myself after when I was thinking about writing, uh, who taught me a lot about writing, whose styles taught me a lot. I have some of the same reference points that you have, and then I have some others that fit within other wheelhouses. If we're talking about educating all kids, yeah, and America is like this big, diverse kind of plurality, some things are going to land with some kids where some other authors or other examples might land with other kids more. Yeah, I hear you. And get them really into it. So, Well, you know what? I, I end this piece with a call to use the comment section to tell me what I'm missing. So jump in there, Chris. Start the conversation. Well, yeah, I'll add you some writers and some writing, you know, on writing experts. People have written things like on writing and they come from di- diverse perspectives. But it's spot on. Like that doesn't take away from your point. Your point is spot on. So well, one thing I'll mention on that front is I actually open our the writing training that I was mentioned earlier with a passage from Isabel Wilkerson, who I think is like probably my favorite writer, and we spend a whole bunch of time breaking her down. I almost included her in this, but the reason why I didn't is because she doesn't write about writing, even though I use her writing as the int- like the, the beginning of um, Warmth of Other Sons is actually the introduction is that we start the writing training with. So that's why I didn't include it, but I'm just making excuses for myself. All right, applied science. This one's more personal to me. So I want to talk before I applied science sounds so jargony. So let me just talk about Mm -hmm. what what I really care about the most here, which is I grew up in Staten Island, New York, which was like the epicenter of the opioid epidemic and just drug culture in the nineties. We were told as kids, it was like the, the, you know, the, all the, like, you know, don't do drugs, TV stuff. Like, like basically the message was very simple. Drugs are bad for you. Don't do drugs. That was the message in my high school. I'm not oversimplifying it. Like that was it. Like there was no nuance to it. There was no explanation behind it. And I was just like, I was telling you, I was talking to Todd Rose today from Populous. He was uh, telling me about the data about those campaigns on TV and how it actually fed drug use because what they wound up doing was communicating to kids that everybody's doing drugs and the kids things kids cared, especially in the 90s, most about was what other kids mm-hmm. were doing. Mm-hmm. So it actually created this widespread perception. It's like similar to the tax cheat stuff. Like when when all the messaging from the IRS was about people are cheating on their taxes, people are like, oh, people are cheating on their taxes. They're getting away with it. <laughs> so this type of messaging was destructive. And I, I would say the, the, the lack of any, or I would say the incompleteness of the messaging was bad. And the, only, and the biggest piece of evidence of that is that drugs destroyed a lot of my friends. I lost a lot of friends, including my best friend in high school, to drugs. And I, this opens a whole conversation I have in the essay just about applied science, which is such a jargony way of saying, like, make the science relevant to kids. So often in scientific classes, we separate things into domains. And I was a chemistry major, so I understand this, and I, I understand the, the the desire to keep things in their their neat boxes, and I know the state testing does this as well. But I would flip the order of how we think about this and say, yes, we're going to get to the domains, but the, the more energy needs to put be put into integrating these scientific concepts into the story we tell kids. Why are we telling you about science? Well, we're telling you about science because there are these things out here we call drugs that a lot of people struggle with and they do things to your mind and body. Let's tell you about them. Or your attention is being hijacked and that's happening to you. Let me tell you about that. Or the planet's in trouble. And like that's like really important. Let me tell you about that. Or we want you to live a long life in which you're, you know, you know, you care about sports and you want to be active and you want to live a long time and you want your mom to live as long as possible. And that's like about anatomy and physiology. Let me tell you that story, right? So I would flip the way that we tell these stories and integrate the science 
So it's basically the how I would do science section here. So maybe I'll pause there because there's probably a lot there. So the big aha though, like when you say how you would do science, you would still do within the domains, but you would find a way to do two things. Integrate uh, learning or lessons across domains for one, and two, make them directly applicable or relevant to the lives of the student. Yeah. So maybe if I'm in an area where, you know, fentanyl is wiping out a big part of the population, that's the deal. Maybe if I'm in a place where there's a social contagion that's going on with suicide, I might do some of the science around some of those things, science around depression. And, yeah, you know, it, it would be, tell me if I'm wrong, it'd be flexible though. Like it wouldn't just be about drugs or alcohol. Yeah. Let me explain how this would work in practice. Well, okay. I think drugs and alcohol are probably like you can count on it being an issue that will probably last for a long time. Hopefully, hopefully this day we don't take it, like it's not as serious as it is today, but as long as it continues to be a serious issue, you know, Staten Island is a good example, still struggling with this issue, for example. So I would prioritize it. But here's, here's what made me, the first time I really thought about this seriously is I had an ecology class in college and my professor Armstrong had two classes at once. One was about drugs and the other was about ecology and my professor Armstrong said, look, you're all, you all signed up for ecology. He's like, that's not this course. He's like, we're going to talk about one ecosystem. And he's like, I'm going to tell you about this one ecosystem. By the end of this course, you're going to know a lot about ecology. You're going to know more than if I just taught you quote unquote ecology. The difference is 20 years from now, this is literally what he said. And it's actually kind of 20 years from now. Now he's like, the difference is 20 years from now, you're going to remember this. And he said, because I'm going to tell you a story the story of this ecosystem. And through that story of the ecosystem, I'm going to teach you about the ecological principles that you could apply to any other ecosystem. And we're going to get there. And he's like, we're going to get to those other ecosystems, right? So that's what I would do in this course. I would say, all right, like, let me pretend and say, all right, we're going to, instead of biology, which is a fresh, usually a freshman or sophomore year course, right? I'm going to start to tell a series of discrete stories in this class and be like, all right, step one is, all right, let's start with you, right? Like you are a teenager. And this is going to be a class all about you right now. So instead of saying like, we're going to start with like, you know, like a chemistry class, the periodic table or whatever, instead we're going to flip the order and be like, we're going to start with you. You're a complex organism. And usually like a smart biology class starts with certain key evolutionary principles, right? That's like usually bio one in college, right? So I'd be like, this is where you came from. This is what we know about you, how you evolved, et cetera. And like the story would be flipped. Now, in the end, it doesn't wound up being too different, but you start to, the, the, the emphasis on the why is very critical. I know it sounds like a small detail, but the kid is sitting there and be like, oh, this is a class about me. It's not a class about biology. And I know I sound like a lunatic when I talk like this, but it's like, <laughs> I think the stuff is so critical the way you yeah. talk about this. Cause it also is the role of the teacher, right? You start to like, I think you need to be telling kids stories cause there's so much data about how much kids just forget. I can guarantee you though, like listen, and I said this to you before, I can guarantee you that most educators think they're doing this already. Yeah, and a lot of them want to do it. I think you need to give them the freedom to truly open up and do no, it. No, I think they literally, not that they want to, I think they think they're already doing this. Yeah. Even if I think about my own kids, the way that their teachers approach lessons, they stay a long time on one story and then try and teach different domains through that one story. And a lot of it, so we live in Minnesota, a lot of it is based on Minnesota. So they'll spend a long time on the Mississippi River, for instance. And it's like, good Lord, why are you guys sticking on? The, how much can you learn about the Mississippi River? Well, you know, as it turns out, there's a lot you can learn through studying the river. 
and Minnesota history around the river, you can study wars and history and ecology and biology and physical ecology. Like there's all these, you know, different takes on the same thing. It does feel like the educators in some places have latched on to this idea that treating things as separate subjects all the time isn't a great way for kids to like get an integrated learning like a holistic, more way of learning. So this one resonates with me. Let's move on to the next one because the next one feels a much, it feels again like we're back into Cal Newport-ish territory. And by that, I just mean like, I just mean it's like, it's an issue of the moment. So you have artificial intelligence. You don't write a lot about it, but you write a couple of paragraphs on this. I will have more to say. I mean, we've talked about it a lot here and on Lost Debate. My point is, this is not a controversial point. I actually think there's almost nobody here who would disagree with what I'm saying on this, which is chat GPT is complicated. It's not a good or a bad. It's a reality, right? Like a reality has to be dealt with. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. And so I have a whole section. I don't even want to talk about it too much because we've talked about it on this podcast about how I would handle that. And so I, I think it's probably the least interesting thing about this whole piece. It's also the thing that I'm my, my thinking is evolving rapidly about it. My, my I would say my biggest a piece of advice to schools is they can often be slow in responding to these things. And this is a very fast moving issue that's going to take schools by storm. And there are tools for educators like GPT-0 where you could catch these things, the sort of, that educators really need to understand the implications of because you could be quote unquote catching kids that you where you aren't, or you need to be able to read, like these things spit out these reports to tell you like, here's the syntactical complexity of a piece and here's the probability that it was created with with AI and all that. And that has all sorts of implications for, do you accuse a kid? How do you accuse a kid? What evidence do you bring forth? Right? Like these are all things that I think are going to be really complicated in schools. And when I cut through all the noise, my biggest piece of advice is create a cross-disciplinary committee just on this issue right now and make sure they're nimble and they can update the school's policies quickly in real time, not just every year. That's my biggest piece of advice. I love it. It's funny because you're hitting so many of my buttons that swing me from conservative to liberal, from progressive to to conservative and from yesterday and being more plotting and historic. Like, like when you talk about the essays, I feel like I want to defend the liberal arts utility. On that particular one, I do think that there's a fundamental way of organizing your thoughts that if you become a good essayist, it's going to help you not be a moron when I talk to you later in life. So you're not going to believe that Jewish space lasers cause wildfires if you're pretty good at organizing your thoughts the way that a five-part essay makes you organize your thoughts with supporting ideas, like big headlines, supporting ideas, you know, real kind of data points, especially a persuasive essayist. If you're a persuasive essayist, there's just, it's like, to, to me, it just feels like moron protection. And like you might be able to, 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 like I need some moron insurance because the Dunning-Kruger movement in the United States is very scary to me. It's the most cancerous thing I've ever seen. The, the things that people believe right now, they could not believe if they were good essayists. They could still believe those things if they were screenplay writers. Uh, you know, just ask Kirk, <laughs> ask Kirk Cameron, right? Like, you know, you could still believe some wild things as a, a really good, you know, screenplay writer. But as a, a pretty solid essayist, it would be hard for me to believe that 50% of the thinkers that we have in America, I mean, listen, here's the other thing. You have a lot of people who never read a book after high school again, right? Which is kind of why I said the thing about reading earlier. But I got your point about readings in middle school, and then writing, you know, and expressing your ideas and organizing them as more of a high school thing. And then in college, I would hope you learn to specialize your writing skills 
starting from the point where you have some writing skills, like, you know, college professors are, are literally complaining constantly about how bad the writing is of incoming people into college now in whatever their discipline. So, so I feel more conservative on that one. And then, you know, the chat GBT, I'm more like, you know, progressive, like you are thinking like, we have to think about every single thing. Is this a tool for good? Or how would this be used for good? Because every technology that has come down the pipe, there was a scare. Oh, this is going to be bad for kids. Well, but turns out that Xbox is not really all that bad for kids. As a matter of fact, now I don't know if you play Fortnite or anything like that. If you have any amount of time, I don't play any video games. Yeah, let me tell you, it's not the mindless thing that people think it is. It, there's some real kind of executive skills that have to happen if you're good. I've at seen it. studies on this though. Yeah, like in terms of hand-eye coordination, for example, and like the ability to think quickly. And the number of problems you have to solve quickly in Fortnite is crazy. Yeah. Like the number of problems like where there's a gun to your head literally and you have to like <laughs> you have to like decide like five things quickly. Uh, it's it's not a joke. So anyways, yeah. the, the next one I think is a really meaty part of this one and it's around critical thinking. And you have a big pinker quote here again, which I'm going to you know get on you about your citations, you know, but... Uh, <laughs> but Pinker's the one actually, in Pinker's defense, he's the one who got me on to Isabel Wilkerson. But no, I, I, I take the point. Um, and, but I think, okay, so the, Pinker has this whole thing around critical thinking that I think is a beautiful two paragraphs that he he wrote in this essay called the, Tr the trouble with Harvard, where he's talking about what higher education should be, and like to me, one thing you realize is through my belief in mastery based education, a lot of the things I think that college should do a really good high school can do for a lot of its kids too, if you give them the ability to move quicker, like and you believe in them more, which is a whole other conversation, but the I would say that essentially like like teaching kids, and this gets to your Dunner-Kruger point you talk about all the time, like the ability to separate objective knowledge from opinion, disagree thoughtfully, organize their thoughts and arguments, understand human fallibility, you know, avoid name-calling people just because they have different opinions than them. These are all things that I think are really critical to teach in high school. And then I get into certain debates that I would lean into. Some old school debates that have always been around, socialism versus capitalism, consequentialism versus deontology, some relatively new debates like techno-optimism versus pessimism, which I think is a very big strain today. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. uh, interdependence versus protectionism, like you look no further than the State of the Union address last night or two nights ago uh, for evidence as to why that's important, privacy versus security. So I would like, and I would update, update those. Obviously, that's my reading of today's debates. But as the debates evolve, I would want kids to really think through those and, and debate them amongst themselves. And including this debate around the 1776 project and the 1619 project is, there's so much being spent right now. And I have my opinions about which of those is the most worthwhile or like whether either of them is worthwhile. But what I would do is I would have kids understand the like I would almost get meta with them. Now, obviously, this might not be a freshman year course, right? But I would get meta with them around, all right, this is what people are saying you should know. These are the claims. Look at the curriculum. And I, instead of saying, like, so much of the debate is around what summary of this event or whatever do we introduce to kids? I would say, like, look, let's just have you, like, examine the material yourself and debate it out in your class. Like, what is a better reading of history? And without a doubt, great teachers do this. I have spent a lot of time on multiple podcasts talking to teachers. I actually got this a lot from just great teachers I speak to who've been fighting the fight, including in places like the South, to be able to do this under great political pressure. And this is, I think, like a good way 
to to introduce kids to to history and to like political debates around what they should know. I agree with this part too, and I'm not going to give you too much of a hard time. This kind of relates to our next topic for the show. But before we go there, I want to say this to everybody listening. You can find this piece. It's part of the new, it's one of only a couple pieces that's been written in the new Imbroglio newsletter for the Lost Debate Network. The piece itself is the first piece that comes from that new newsletter, and it is called The High School We Need by Ravi Gupta and Lost Debate, the Lost Debate Network. So I would encourage you to go read it because there's some more things in there about math um, that we didn't get to that I think would be important and are going to be important for our discussions nationally over the next couple of years. We're really going to have to start talking about people getting over their math anxieties and actually helping kids learn math. Uh, I think adults are doing a lot to stand in the way of that. So Ravi talks about that in this piece. Yeah, and get in there and, and make comments. Like, Because one of the things that I want to know is like, what's out, first of all, what are out there that I'm missing or I get wrong? Absolutely. And two is, what's out there that's an example of any of the things I'm talking about? Like, hey, there's a school down the street that does this really well. Because the next step is I want to point people in the direction of how to do this stuff well. Like maybe one day we'll start that school. Don't take our word for it on the pod. There's other elements of this, like how to handle fitness and sports and all this kind of stuff that we didn't have time to talk about. So there's way more than what we talked about. So you should check it out. Dan, I would say this to everybody. These things should be a conversation. These should be things where we introduce ideas into the world and, you know, curious, smart people exchange them and think about them. Because there's one thing that is clearly important to me about this discussion that we're having right now is we do have to do something about high school. We do have to really constantly be thinking about whether or not the, our schools are meeting the moment. And right now, I don't think that anybody can argue that any of our schools are really meeting the moment, even though we have many schools that do something well or do some things well for groups of kids. That's still not the same as being a nation that is producing world-leading graduates, releasing people into the world. Like We are not a poor country. We are a country with some extensive resources I don't know that our output, our educational output lives up to our input. We could be doing better. I guess that's the the least fancy way to say is we could do better. And high school is a good place to start because to me, that's the last exit to Soulville. If you, if you wipe out in high school, as I did, it has great consequences for your 20s, like mine. So my 20s and my early 30s, they were a case study in what happens when you don't get what you need in high school. So I've lost time in my life because of my wipeout in high school. Well, thanks for making time for this. I really appreciate it. Like I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk no, about it. No, and I appreciate you writing the piece. I appreciate you, Ravi, writing an essay. As outdated as they are, I appreciate you putting your thoughts into one and sharing, you know. <laughs> I deserve that. I actually, I deserve that. I should have anticipated that. Well, let, should we talk about Hillsdale? Yeah, let's, you know, let's do an update here. So people in the public have heard us talk about Tennessee and Nashville specifically. And I think even a little bit about Hillsdale College and the charter schools that Hillsdale was supposed to start in Nashville. Specifically, I shouldn't say Nashville, in Tennessee, there were going to be as much, as many as 100 that the, the governor wanted to start with uh, with Hillsdale as a partner that got wheeled down to 50. And now after a lot of heat and public, you know, kind of scrutiny and things that went down, none of that really worked out. But there is now a local agency that is working, you know, as a affiliate of Hillsdale called American Classical Education. And they're trying to get five of their charter schools down. Now, that's a big reduction in numbers, but uh, in several counties in Tennessee, Madison, Montgomery, Mowry, Robertson, and Rutherford counties are all targets for these um, 
pseudo religious charter schools, but not ex- explicitly uh, religious in Tennessee as they are in other states. So Ravi, you know people locally. What's that issue here? Knowing now that the one update that we have is that it didn't really go away. They are coming back with with the idea that they might try and get a few schools, which is like, you know, five schools. Yeah. Important to just underscore something you said, you know, Hillsdale, this is that private conservative Christian liberal arts college in Michigan. They were super involved in the 1776 project that Trump did to create these sort of quote unquote patriotic standards. The sort of head of Hillsdale College was the chair of that committee. So they're kind of a politicized organization. They were founded in 1844 by members of the Free Will Baptists. But this is an affiliate, and the affiliate gives them the the ability to run public schools that are not explicitly religious. Unless, of course, you're in Oklahoma, where they apparently say you could run religious charter schools, which we'll probably do a segment on at some point. But related to the Oklahoma conversation, this is like a growing movement of, of poison pills that are happening within the reform movement by some like re- conservatives who think they're helping the school choice movement but are actually destroying it by pushing schools that have no business being public schools. And why do I say Hillsdale doesn't deserve a public school? Like look, yeah, they created an affiliate organization that's 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 secular ostensibly. So let's take them at their word that that's true. The reason why I say they have no business running these schools and the reason why they couldn't even get approved in Tennessee, which is a fairly conservative place, even with the backing of the governor, who's close with the head of Hillsdale, is because they don't perform well. So Chris, I sent you data on this. Like There was a regression analysis from 2019 of their schools in two different states. And what you see is that when you put the uh, percentage of students on free and reduced lunch on the x-axis and academic achievement on the y-axis, and then you have a best fit line to say, well, where should you be? Are you above the line or below the line? If you're below the line, you're underperforming where you should be, given your demographics. And if you're above the line, you're overperforming. Basically, what you see is that this is a school network that largely serves more affluent people. They don't have a high percentage of free and loose lunch kids. That's not a sin. Like There are plenty of schools that are like that. Fine. Like We've talked about when we talked about the Rick Hess piece, one of the things the school reform movement didn't hasn't done well is to serve a diversity of economic interests. Let's pretend like you buy that argument. The problem is they don't they don't outperform other public schools at that demographic. So it's unclear what the value add here is. And often, actually, as you start to go along the line, where they just take on a couple of, you know, 10% here, or 5% more students with with on free and reduced lunch, which is inevitable in Tennessee, which is a state that has a lot of these counties that they're going to have struggling uh, economic pockets like anywhere else, they're below the line in a lot of cases. Like in a lot of these cases, I think more often than not, they're below the best fit line, meaning they're underperforming where they should be. So why are we chartering this network who has a track record of underperforming the schools around them? Like charter schools are supposed to do better than the schools around them and provide something that those schools aren't providing. I'm not, I'm not sure that they provide any value. And it seems like the Tennessee Charter School Board doesn't believe, as well as the local boards of education, don't believe that these schools are offering anything. Yeah. You know, I think there might be something to the fact that we've always misread the politics of right-wing support for charter schools and Republican support for charter schools. I think we always read that as they were honest supporters. But if you look at places like Tennessee Oftentimes you find conservative folks who support these things in theory, but they don't want it in their own backyard. So a charter school, to me, in a lot of ways, these are schools of hope. 
These are schools of opportunity in places where hope and opportunity were were declining or redlined out of existence. So that's why they work well, I think, in urban or in blue places oftentimes is because they're providing an alternative for kids that actually need hopeful pathways out of what they've been redlined into. But I think we overestimate in all of those red counties and all those red places across America, their satisfaction with their traditional central district schools. And those are Republican and conservative superintendents. Those are Republican and conservative school boards and teachers and teacher groups. Those are whole Republican communities that don't necessarily think that they need some crappy little school showing up on their plot of their beautiful football field, offering them what, right? So, so, so I think we overestimated there, you know, in a lot of these places where choicey type of things are passing, the actual legislative uh, conservatives are actually in a fight with the local and grassroots conservatives, for instance. Like you have Republican super, superintendents showing up to the state capitol saying, that's great if you want to put that in Memphis or Nashville, but don't think you're going to put that anywhere near us, right? Well, I called around, so you're totally right. And I, you know, this background, I think a lot of our listeners know this. I ran a, a charter school in Nashville and then a charter school network in Nashville. I'm very familiar with this dynamic in Nashville. And Mississippi as well had very similar dynamic, which is there's an unspoken deal between uh, rural GOP representatives in the state legislature and the more reform-oriented progressives in big cities. Like a classic example was Carl Dean, who was mayor of Nashville, and Bill Haslam, who was the governor at the time, who was kind of like a Jeb Bush-style Republican governor, had this kind of alliance on school reform. And they were able to get critical charter school legislation passed because these rural legislators, and this is also what happened in Mississippi, basically were like, as long as you ain't bringing that to my school districts, you're mm -hmm. fine. Mm -hmm. And that's what kind of blew up here with this Hillsdale thing. So I talked to a lot of people on the ground in Tennessee this week, and we were telling me the governor is screwing this up. He's screwing up our coalition. They got a lot of things they want to get passed at the legislative level to, to sure up the charter school law. And it's making it harder for them because the governor's kind of blowing up this sort of unspoken truce that they had. And so, yeah, it is interesting. I'm not sure that truce should exist because like the schools should be good for everybody. Uh, obviously there are different realities um, in smaller districts than bigger districts, but school choice should be, if it's, if it's the right idea, it should apply anywhere. So yeah, it is, it is fascinating to see that. The governor's also, from what I understand, purging members of the charter school commission, the state charter school board, who aren't for this. So apparently already one has left and there's a lot of speculation that this guy left because he was pushed out. And then there's another member who I'm hearing is being pushed out at this very moment who just aren't into this. So it's possible that they're gonna change the composition of this board and wind up approving these down the line. Either way, there's political recrimination not for not going with the governor. And everybody I talked to, conservative, liberal, basically saying this guy, this governor is a buffoon, doesn't understand what he's doing. And they can't say it publicly because they they don't want to you know spark recrimination and create problems for themselves. Well, mark my words, and we can jump off of this one. This was an update, but mark my words on this one. My friends in the so-called movement for better schools, or whatever you want to call it, reform choice, uh, whatever you want to call it, I am just warning you in in the most humble way that I can. I think you're hitching your wagon to toxic trucks that are going to drive you off of a cliff if you keep following people who are taking very heavy-handed, ham-handed, Dunning-Krugerish 
type of ends justifies the means right wing uh, authoritarian behavior, right? When you're removing people from boards and committees and overturning entire like college boards uh, of their trustees and replacing them with buffoons who are on the right wing and will just say whatever you want them to say. The whole Powell principle from years ago of you break it, you own it. You keep breaking all these boards, these districts, these local school boards, these um, these systems, these places of authority, and just because you ham-handedly hand, want to to install your worldview, you're going to ruin reform for everybody. You're going to ruin the entire, you're going to ruin charters, you're going to ruin choice, you're going to ruin any semblance of a movement of educational improvement that is good for all people. So hitching your wagon to this toxic truck right now is really something I have to warn against. I couldn't be more serious about this. I'm a person that has, I think, very heterodox beliefs. I am not dogmatic. I don't believe in one fixed set of ideas, and I never will, which means that I always have to look for solutions that work for the most number of people. And we are selling ourselves down to, to people who want solutions that work for the least number of people. They just It's just like a will to power. It's such a short-sighted, cheap, ignorant way of strategizing for a movement. And our opponents probably couldn't be more happy about it because we're finally giving them what they want. They have always said that a big portion of reformers were racist segregationists who wanted to install theology and, and uh, the, they were theocratic and all, all of those things. And now we have states that are working with a Christian college to overtake colleges and, and K-12 schools and the entire Department of Education in some states against the objections of local people. It's what our opponents always wanted, and I can't say enough about how if there is a winning strategy for us, it's to start a bigger tent movement, it's to an alternative movement that includes everyone, and find a way for the most number of people to be able to have their charter schools or their magnet schools or their whatever it is that they want or need that's the that's the ticket because we're a big country full of lots of different kinds of people and that's my soapbox moment right now which is just really to say the only survivable durable long-term plan for us is one that really respects american pluralism and gets the most number of people satisfied as possible and you can't do that when you're hitching your wagon to monopartisan monoracial like one way of seeing the world mono religious theocratic type of ways of seeing the world anyways i said a lot on that one ravi i appreciate your always being the connect to nashville and getting the real deal out of what's actually going on we'll go down there someday i think we could do a good like special on the ground episode there because there's when we talk dark forces i haven't as you know i haven't shared 99% of the dark forces that exist. We should do it. Because I just want to say this for people listening, and and I love Nashville, and uh, there's some people there that I love who've been very helpful to me. But in the visits that I had to look into some of these issues that Ravi is talking about, I found things there locally that I never thought I would see like anywhere. There were like, there was a rare level of corruption in some of the things that I'd seen. And I'm cynical and I've been a lot of places. So for me to go like, oh my God, you know what? Like, I agree. I learned more about just sociopathic politics, bare knuckle politics in yes. Nashville than I did in any of the campaigns I've worked on anywhere. Like I, I learned more about the reality of our po politics and the scary reality of it 
uh, down there than anywhere. Um, we had one last update, which was on, we've been talking a lot about the state of Florida, how they're trying to be the new Mississippi. And we've talked a lot about Ron DeSantis's uh, anti-woke crusade, political crusade. The last installment of that particular story was the, the AP studies, African-American studies debacle, where he rejected a course because it had queer theory in it and it had representation of concepts he didn't like, like intersectionality and some accusations that it contained CRT. As if the mere existence of those things in any thought system makes them invalid for critique or invalid for learning. My God, if you took all things you disagreed with out of my learning and my my school career or whatnot, I would have been left with very little. Probably just a story about how you know, George Washington couldn't tell a lie and cut down a cherry tree or some crap like that. I don't know. Like, like, you know, so, so you could remove it all, but anyways, oh my God, it's Marxism, it's CRT, it's blah, blah. And my response to that is, so what, what, what about those should my kid not know about? Should my kid know what socialism is and where it comes from? Should my kid know about like the, the competition between communism and capitalism and, or should we just remove all the things we don't like? Let's just redact Redact education. Anyways, since then, the College Board released what was the final version of the African-American Studies uh, course that you can take for AP now. It had removed from it some of the things that DeSantis says that he wanted out of it, specifically multiple Black women authors, including Kimberly Crenshaw, Angela Davis, Bell Hooks, and others. Took out queer studies and some of the other things that were seen as objectionable objectionable. But the College Board says that that was already in progress and it has nothing to do with Florida or DeSantis. They say that, you know, that there was like all these concepts and the scholars that they had working on it during the pilot, it was their job to remove things that were less important and to put them in a different section. So they are still within another section of the AP, the voluntary section of what teachers can use off the shelf. They're just not in the main kind of curriculum that was put out. So there's that. I don't know if you want to add to this, Ravi, but to me, it just fits in with what I said before about like, stop hitching your wagon to the wrong toxic kind of movement because it's temporarily successful for you. Yeah. I would say oh, there's just something that broke as I was sitting down. I don't know exactly the implication of it, but DeSantis released some trove of emails and communications between him and the college board. So whatever, whatever circus he's trying to kick up, around this, he, he clearly wants to continue having this conversation, but obviously he's got a special animus towards this curriculum. You and I were talking about this offline the other day. You know, it seems to reveal something about what he seems to care about or not care about, you know, it seems to be a special level of scrutiny on this curriculum. You know, it's, it's super simple in my mind. I think we should stop overthinking these things. He thinks the pathway to the White House for him is paved with as much beating up black people and gays as possible. When we talk about woke and stop woke and all that stuff, that's just all, in my mind, code word for Southern strategy. Like, if I want to win, I've got to get all the white people I can possibly get, and then the near white people. i got to get them all. Anybody who has animus against these outgroups, blacks, gays, lesbians, trans people, just all the usual kind of scapegoats that make for like really great minorities to kick around as outgroups, political points for everyone you kick. Everyone you kick. So let's make a sport out of it. Let's just hurt people to make a sport out of them because we know another group of people will really enjoy it and be entertained by it. And for my friends, you know, in the school choice movement and others who have considered friends who look at these things and your response to it is, yeah, but you know, it's going to be good for choice. He's a good choicey guy for choice. Congratulations on the end of our friendship, first of all. 
uh, let's just mark the day, the end of our friendship, uh, the whole silence of our friends thing that, that, uh, Dr. King and others talked about so appropriate here because you can't watch somebody make sport of kicking out groups around for political gain, know that that's happening and still be okay with it because it makes you win a policy victory somewhere. And Oh, by the way, this is what I want people of color and others to know. When I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago, Ravi, we should come back to this and, and maybe do my piece on a show. I wrote about this. What you are signaling to the people of color that you have been trying for years to convince that school choice was the appropriate thing to help them lift all boats and help them, you are now communicating to them that what in your most optimal vision of the world, where there's school choice, uh, Florida's the choiciest state in the world. They've got more school choice than anywhere else. You can choose from so many different kinds of schools, but now when you get in those schools, you can't choose what you can learn. You can't, you can't choose the curriculum anymore. As a matter of fact, the curriculum that my students and my family would want or need is outlawed by law in the choiciest state. So what does that say about your version of school choice, that you would have the most choice possible of a school and the least choice possible of curriculum? and what my kids can learn, and what books they can read, and have what books they can have access to, what discussions they can have in classrooms, what authors and scholars they can learn in colleges. Isn't it so weird and ironic that in the choicest place in the United States, you have some of the strongest regulations against what you can actually learn, what you can actually take in? That's what I want my people of color to hear and know and think about every single time someone approaches them about school choice. When any of these guys approach you, what I want you to think, just like Rufo wants you to think anytime you hear CRT, he wants you to think of wacky stuff. He doesn't want you to think about a scholarship, a body of scholarship that came out of the civil rights movement. He wants you to think about wacky stuff like kitty litter in classrooms. Well, what I want you to hear when any of these guys come to your communities of color, what I want you to hear is the greatest regulations on free thought and free thinking for people of color ever in any state in the country. That's what school choice means to them. So don't buy it. That's my final word. Ravi, do you have a final word? Do you want to jump in on that? <laughs> All right. No, just uh, always a pleasure. And, uh, you know, everybody uh, go check out Sweat the Technique, our newest podcast. We dropped a sample episode uh, this week. And every week we'll be talking about that. This is our like K-12 podcast in Lost Debate is Citizen Stewart Show. Sweat the Technique is from a bunch of educators who are applying lessons from K-12 outside of education. And so that's all about how you become a better parent, how do you learn hobbies, you know, how do you become a better manager, et cetera. And we've got some good co-hosts on that. Stacey Shells out of Chicago, Ryan Hill out of KIPP team in Newark, and then my buddy Doug Lamov, who uh, is from Uncommon Schools and helped me think about teaching and revolutionize teaching, and then went to go work for Premier League Soccer and American Soccer, helping them take those principles and apply them elsewhere. So, you know, three other educators who I really respect. So if you're like a, somebody likes to walk out on school stuff outside of school, this is your in-school one. That's your out-of-school one. So go check that <laughs> one out. Yeah. Uh, well, I appreciate that. And as always, I appreciate to, uh, everyone who listens to the show and shares the show with others and who gets back to us and leaves us either voice messages or email messages telling us what you like about the show. You are all amazing and we love reading your comments. If you want to leave us a voicemail, you can do it at 321-213-9171. If you want to send us an email, you can send it to citizenstewartshow at lostdebate.com. We are a proud member of the Lost Debate Network. Uh, we love doing our piece to make sure that the network grows. And part of that would be you subscribing to the show or leaving a review on the show. And also, as Ravi just said, 
seeking out some of the other shows on the Lost Debate Network and seeing the variety of of uh, voices that we have on this network. Everything from left to right and up and down and forward and backward, partisan and nonpartisan. Spanish language. Spanish language. We have Spanish language podcasts. We have India's number one podcast or number two podcast. I was about to brag about that. The number one podcast in India, which is the largest group of people on planet Earth. And the smartest. And the best looking. Okay, see, now this is, you know, you are good looking, Ravi. You are smart. You're all those things. I don't know when you put the est on there, like smart est and best looking. I don't know that that's necessary, but, you know. We're the humblest also, the humblest. Well, anyways, thank you for listening. This has been another episode of the Citizen Stewart Show. We appreciate you as always, and we will catch you on the next episode.